Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, a podcast by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Peter Bogdanovich's new documentary, The Great Buster, which chronicles the life and works of the influential filmmaker and comedian Buster Keaton. Interspersed with interviews with collaborators, filmmakers, performers, and friends, the film examines Keaton's career as the director, writer, producer, and star of his own films, as well as the loss of artistic independence and career decline that marked his later years. The Great Buster was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to The Great Buster, Mr. Bogdanovich's filmography includes the feature films What's Up Doc, Paper Moon, and She's Funny That Way, the movies for television Prowler, The Price of Heaven, and The Mystery of Natalie Wood, and episodes of the series Fallen Angels and The Sopranos. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures and the Academy Award for Best Director for his 1971 feature, The Last Picture Show. Following the DGA screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Bogdanovich spoke with director Chuck Workman about filming The Great Buster. During their conversation, Mr. Bogdanovich discusses why silent films are so good at comedy his desire to not leave the audience crying, and what makes Buster Keaton such a unique director. Hi, Chuck. Uh, Hi, how are you, Peter? Uh, And so glad you got to make this film. So am I, I love Buster. You know, I think he was the first, he was either the first or the second movie I ever saw. My father took me to the Museum of Modern Art. And, um, in, you know, when I was a kid, when I was four, five, six years, seven years old, and I saw Keaton and Chaplin and, and Lloyd and it was great uh, That's great where the, the uh, it was down in the basement, the, yeah. uh, the theater. Uh, yeah, a friend of mine became a filmmaker because he went to the bathroom down there. And then he yeah, wandered into the, to the art films at the Museum of Modern Art. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was, I grew up with that. Arthur Kleiner played the piano. And you, you could be lulled by the sound of subways going by yeah, of up, course. Or above you. Uh, speaking of that, um, Arthur Kleiner and the music, the music was quite something. I mean, it was, it was totally scored and like a silent film, but even better than a silent film, more like uh, uh, a contemporary film. Very, very carefully done, very good, careful sound design. Uh, that looked like it took a lot of work and a lot of trouble. I, I had a brilliant editor, uh, Bill Berg Hillinger. He's just great, and uh, I've, he's worked with me on a couple of things, including the, bust, uh, the um, <coughs> Tom Petty documentary I did, and the last film I, I did. And he's a great cutter, and a lot of that, a lot of that music he found. I don't even know where, like, where the hell he found it. He's great. Yeah, it was amazing. So it was not an original score. It was all stuff that all he f- dug up. He found it. It was all free, too. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was amazing, amazing cutter. And also, the, um, 
I'm sure that everybody felt this. Uh, I'm not sure, but they should have, I think, is coming back to those great features at the end, rather than doing it chronologically, was kind of a, a great idea. I mean, it was, it, it, it like brought you into the classics. Uh, so many filmmakers, as you know better than anybody, uh, have their moments. Uh, you know, if you look at the other films you've made about John Ford or, 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 or books you've written, you, they have their decade or they have their 20 years or they have their five years, whatever it is. Uh, and uh, to come back to that, I think, and leave us with that and not, uh, although a very poignant moment when he died, uh, is, uh, was uh, c quite a smart idea. I think it was the one good idea I had. Well, it was good enough. <laughs> I had that idea and I said, yeah, I don't want to, you know, there's an old show business maxim, always leave him laughing. And I didn't see going out on a Buster Keaton movie, everybody crying because he's died. I didn't want us to do that. And luckily, for me, in terms of storytelling, uh, a year before he died, the Venice Film Festival did a t uh, tribute to Buster. And as I said, and it was very uh, popular, and he received the longest standing ovation in the festival's history. I think it still hasn't been broken, that record. Something like 10 minutes. And uh, I remember when I was in um, Venice with uh, Owen Wilson, we showed a picture there, and after it was over, the audience stood up and applauded for a long time. They looked, and we were just standing there, Owen and I, and some of the rest of the cast, staring at the audience, and they're just applauding. You know, it's kind of a strange thing to play. They're applauding, and you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. And uh, Owen turns to me, and he whispers, he says, do you think this is like Stalin? They, had to, they have to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I love, I love work, working on this. This was great fun. Oh, I, the, the ending with this. So the idea was not to leave the audience crying, but rather and I was happy that, obviously happy that Venice had done this, because plot-wise, it gives me an excuse. Of course, yeah. yeah. And um, I just uh, in passing, um, Jim Caron, who described when Buster was dying in, in a yeah. very wonderful, poignant moment, you know, uh, died himself a couple months ago, I unfortunately. Know, Jim, he's a very and, nice guy. And he was a great guy, and yeah. we've all seen him in a million movies. Uh, I'm so glad that he got in, in, involved in this, because I know that he was close with Buster. He's very, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. And, and, but how did you come up with like Johnny Knoxville? And, and well, he did like a lot of stunts, you know, and he's well known for doing those kind of crazy stunts. Mm -hmm. So we thought, we, let's see if he was influenced at all by Buster. And he was. Very nice guy, by the way. And there's that wonderful thing when the building falls on him. Yeah. My editor found all those, all those imitations of that joke. I, I couldn't believe there were so many of them. Oh, of course, you know. I, I, just, I just didn't know anybody had done it. It was amazing. And do you think that Buster uh, Keaton's films have influenced your films? Well, I think when I made What's Up Doc, I, I, I said to everybody, we're doing a Buster Keaton chase, which was presumptuous of me to say that. But it was, that was, the, that was the, what I had in mind, was a Buster Keaton kind of chase, you know. Um, and it was quite a long chase. But I don't know that Buster ever did exactly that kind of chase, but, but it was, it was in, in, in the spirit of sound films, which were funnier than any other films subsequently made. The great thing about sound pictures is you didn't have to wait for the laugh, so you could build laughs on it, 
you could keep laughing. You could build to a hysteria of laughter that you never could do in, in talking pictures because you have to wait to hear the line to get the laugh. Oh, well, for the next line, you mean? Yeah. I understand. I understand. It's building a, a kind of hysteria out of, out of, out of laughs because you, ha you have no, nothing to interfere. First of all, there's no color to distract you. Eyes, beautiful eyes, beautiful hair. None of that distracts you because it's black and white. And um, silent, so anybody can understand it. And you don't have to wait for laughs. It's, it's, it's ideal for, com for comedy. And Let's go back to silent pictures. <laughs> People try, and it works a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, did you, um, in, in your career, did you run into people who could do that kind of physicality at all? I mean, John Ritter. John Ritter. Amazing. John Ritter was amazing. Yeah. He was also a dear, yeah, give him a good hand. He deserves it. He deserves 10 hands. He was one of the great men. A dear friend of mine. I loved him. I did three pictures with him. And um, he was amazing. He could do anything. We did a picture called They All Laughed in New York. And he had a roller skating sequence. He had to roller skate. And you know, in order to be bad at roller skating, you have to be good at it. And uh, otherwise, you could fall down, and that's the end of the scene. Uh, but he could do anything with that roller skates. He was brilliant. And, and John had a physicality that was amazing. We did a picture called Noises Off. He had to fall down a flight of stairs. Thank you, thank you. It was a great play by Michael Frayn. And John had to fall down the stairs. He didn't even pay, barely padded. He fell down the whole flight of stairs. I, I don't know how, how he did it, frankly. We, luckily, we only did it once. <laughs> he got it right. Oh, John. But John is about the only one that had that kind of physicality. Okay, I just want to change the subject to one thing. Um, because you know so much about film history, especially American film history, that I wanted you to um, just briefly make a comparison between Keaton and Chaplin. And for so many years, until recently even, this film was helping it. Chaplin was considered the great master and Keaton was like the number two man to some people and other people not. Uh, and yet we still watch them both in a certain way. But do you think they had the same kind of way of attracting an audience, <clears throat> excuse me, and getting their laughs? That's an interesting, it's a good question. It's, it requires a, a book to answer it, I think. Uh, but. I'm sure there are plenty of academic books. Yes, yes. I, I like Keaton better because he's less, he's not sentimental at all. Uh, Keaton, I mean, Chaplin is quite sentimental, and that's what dates him. Uh, I, I love Chaplin, he's funny, and he's also touching. But Keaton is, well, first of all, Keaton was a better director. He put the camera in the more interesting places, and always the right place. Um, somebody once said to Chaplin, you know, Mr. Chaplin, your camera and your camera, your uh, shots are not very interesting to look at. He said, they don't have to be, I am interesting, <laughs> which is correct. But there's a kind of Victorian sentimentality in Chaplin that you don't have in Keaton. So Keaton seems to be more modern. Yeah, and also speaking of that, so I'm wondering what it is. You, you bring it up in the film at the very end about or actually, um, one of the one of your interview ease brought it up that how um, Keaton is able to stay in modern for and and will be for a hundred years. I think he said in, in the interview, uh, and some don't. Some people, you know, some some silent stars who are great stars don't. So uh, I know 
you don't have the answer, but what would be your answer I think, to that? I think he, he just was more modern than, than, than not. He, there's nothing old-fashioned about most of those jokes. All right, and then the, the other thing is he was dark. He had a dark sense of humor. So he was constantly making fun of pre, pre, dangerous things, you know, like a feud where he was going to get shot. I think it's terribly funny they shoot at him and he looks around and wonders what that is. Yeah, I know. I just, I think he's so funny. Um, well, I think that boils it, that it boils down to that, that he's modern because he's, he deals with dark things in a funny way and, and isn't sentimental. And uh, this is certainly not a sentimental age that we're in. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, the, the thing I was thinking about was a lot of the people that we admire today, whether it's Keaton or Wells, or we could mention others, Kubrick even, uh, are, were fighting the establishment a lot and, and suffered from it to some extent. Uh, so what are we going to do about that? Well, I don't know. It's too late to help Orson. <laughs> well, it was... Um, oh, God, it's such a complicated situation because the studio system has collapsed, so it doesn't exist anymore, so nobody knows what that was like. But it was actually a very intelligent way of making films because everybody was under contract. You know, you go to make shoes, you've got leather, you've got the shoelaces, you've got the heels, you... And making a movie is much tougher. You've got to have a lot of people. And if you have them under contract, it's easy. If you don't have them under contract, it's hell. Every picture is the first time, first time out. You know? So that, that whole studio system, which produced some of the greatest work that Amer made in America in terms of the screen, and some of the best movie stars. But the whole idea of a movie star is different now. Movie stars today are good actors. They're, uh, with, with few exceptions, good actors, but not movie stars, because Humphrey Bogart, John Wayne, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, they conjure up a personality. You hear that name, you think of maybe some movie that you like particularly them, but you, you, the, the whole idea of movie stars at that period, that whole long period, 50 years, is that the character and the actor the, the, the actor erased the line between himself and the character. It, he, he, didn't, he wasn't acting, he was being. And that's, that's a great thing about movies that you can't get on the stage. You can get it in movies only, is this idea that an actor isn't acting, he's being. So it's John Wayne, it's, it's John Wayne does Clark the same King thing every time. Yeah, but it's, it's good. Yeah. Bogart is similar in every picture. But he's good, and you, you're interested in the Cary Grant, who was the most extraordinary movie star, I think, um, was able to do comedy and drama, had extraordinary, look at the difference between, uh, say, His Girl Friday and Bringing Up Baby. Same director, two years apart, totally different performance, totally, di di totally different comic performance. It was a much richer time than we have today. Uh, we don't have a rich time right now at all. Only movie stars left of Streisand and Eastwood. <laughs> Real movie stars. Uh, the, uh, and Clint, did you see The Mule? Anybody see The Mule? Yeah. It's not great, but I just love Clint. He's 87 and he's made two, two pictures. It gives us 
you know, it's very encouraging for us who are a little bit older. for us all, that's exactly right. <laughs> I said to David Chase, he said, you know, I'm getting older, I don't know, the guy who did The Sopranos, I'm getting older, you know, I don't know, Peter, it's kind of tough. I said, well, Clint's 85, this was a couple of years ago. He said, yeah, Clint is good for all of us. <laughs> uh, I, as many of you may know or may not know, uh, uh, Peter's written uh, some very interesting books of interviews with uh, famous directors, uh, who the devil made it, and famous actors, uh, who the hell's in it, and uh, um, other, many other books and, and articles and stuff like that. So uh, it's not just uh, a, a good filmmaker making a film about Buster Keaton, it's an expert uh, on American cinema, as I said before, making uh, these kind of films. Uh, uh, quite an expert who spent a lifetime uh, looking at this stuff. And I, I, I just wanted to say that on seeing it again here, that the uh, intelligence of the narration was was very helpful, I think, in, uh, to people who to understand what's the point when you brought out there was one take when you know et cetera. And uh, I, I assume that that was purposeful, and no one you didn't think anybody would like it but you. But I'm glad you did it. <laughs> No, I, I thought it was helpful to the audience to, to, to see that and um, to, to tell them that. And also, you know, the guy who runs Cannes, uh, Terry Fremont, after he saw the picture, he called me up and said, I really liked the fact that you narrated it yourself me because too. it made it very personal, even more personal. And I, I wanted it to be personal. I didn't want, also wanted it to be a little bit more casual uh, in terms of the narration. That's why I, one of the reasons we jumped back to the 10 years, I mean to the, to the 10, ten fe features at the end was because I could do that within my narration, you know. Was that a, a long uh, a period of time to, for you to do that and write that and figure that out and come up back afterwards and change things and that no, sort of I thing? No, I really pretty much wrote it straight through. Um, but you know, I always, the difference between a, a fiction film and a documentary is with a fiction film, you write the script and then you shoot it. With a documentary, you shoot it and then you write it. Because you don't know what you've got until you've shot it, as you, know, as you very well know. So I didn't know what anybody was gonna say, and until I got it, I couldn't, I couldn't really cut the picture or even write it. But then the writing, I think, was, it was basically, it was the, the construction that you see. And I don't, it didn't take me that long to write the narration, I don't think. I, I don't remember, frankly. Maybe they say Werner Herzog goes in a closet in his editing room <laughs> and, and looks at the scene and then does a few narration and brings it back and they record it. That's interesting. But it, it was very apt to the narration. There's so much bad narration in, in documentaries uh, that we've grown up watching. And, uh, well, I thought, if, if I, since I made the thing, that I should might as well tell, take the audience uh, through it, you know? Yeah, but that'll set a bad example for people who don't know anything <laughs> to That's make true. bad films. Um, let me see if there's any questions out there for Peter. Yeah. That's an interesting question, but it gets into the whole thing about silent movies and the speed at which they're shot and the speed at which they're played. And that's a very complicated issue. It's not that complicated, but it's not that interesting to people. But the fact of the matter is between 1915, let's say, and 1929, with the beginning of sound, uh, the all sound, they cranked the movies, they mostly hand cranked the movies at the beginning, and they used to crank between 12 and 22 frames per second, somewhere in between. Like for example, I saw Robin Hood, Alan Dwan's, uh, Douglas Fairbanks' Robin Hood, which was made in 1922, I think. 
and um, I saw it, it was terribly slow. And it, it was shot at, uh, let's say, uh, 20 frames per second. And it was shown at 15 frames per second, which slows it down terribly. And it's unwatchable almost. Well, you don't, you, so you'd, you'd, have to f you'd have to really find out what the picture was cranked at, shot at, and then projected at that with a, with, a, with a projector that has variable speed. It's hell. You can't rush, run a silent movie e the way it's supposed to be easily. Can't do it easily. But a lot of the films were not jerky. It was smooth. The jerkiness comes from being, being projected at the wrong speed, really. That's why. Anybody else? Yeah, right here. I think the most interesting thing was one of the, I can't remember who said it, but uh, I can't remember now which one of them said it, but that he was so mild-mannered that he said, if, if, I earn, if I'm worth more, they'll pay me more. He, he wasn't a, a prima donna in a funny way at all. Um, I, I thought, found that to be very touching, actually, and sort of heartbreaking that he was, didn't think that much of himself, that he, would, that he would stand up and say, I'm Buster Keaton, for Christ's sake. Look at what I've done. What have you done, you know? Louis B. Mayer was famous for screwing up comedy. They didn't understand comedy. Comedy is very hard to do, by the way. Uh, people, people ask me about what's harder to do, drama or comedy. I tell you, comedy's tough. Because if they don't laugh, you can't, there's no excuse. They didn't laugh, it didn't work. It's like the joke when Jerry Lewis was doing a deal working with Dean Martin. It's one of my favorite lines. And he, it was a live show on Colgate Comedy Hour. And Jerry made a joke, so I mean, had a line, and didn't get a laugh. The audience was there. He turned to the audience and said, let's face it, people, these are the jokes. So he got a laugh. Y'all in the center there. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know that he did. I can't say that he didn't. I didn't come across that. And did other people acknowledge him? Did other filmmakers? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. And contemporary ones? Or yeah, you know, uh, some, I some, had an actress. I can't remember which one. I mean, many actresses and actors. I've said this, too. If you can play comedy, you can do anything. And I think that's true. Because comedy is the toughest thing to do. I remember Edmund Gwen, who played Chris Kringle in The Miracle on 34th Street. Very good actor, Edmund Gwen. Teddy Gwen, they called him. And uh, he was dying at the Motion Picture Country Home. And his friends went out to see him. How's it going, Teddy, they said. And he said, it's tough. It's tough. But not as tough as comedy. <laughs> uh, and it, yeah, right there. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know how to answer it. Um, I didn't like the John Ford documentary when we made it in 1971. It came out in 71. And for years, I wanted to redo it. I just didn't think it was good enough. And I did finally get the opportunity to redo it in 2006, I think, uh, with T Turner Classic Movies and Kennedy Marshall. They threw in, and Warner, Warner Home Video. They all threw in a little bit of money, and we did a new version, which I much prefer. And that's the one that's available on cassette. I mean, on cassette, that dates me. Uh, on DVD. <laughs> I said that the other day, video cassette. Somebody looked at me strangely. If um, you haven't seen that John Ford film, it's, it's really interesting. And uh, I'll let Peter do the John Ford voice, but the very famous clip in it is when Peter asks him, how did you shoot that? <laughs> and Jack, Jack says, with a camera. 
It's a very reliable clip for me. I use it all the time when I need to laugh. Ford was, you know, Ford was very perverse, uh, very perverse and very funny, actually. Irish, you know, black Irish humor. Um, I, was, I would go visit him when he was between pictures, and uh, he spent most of the time between pictures in bed, uh, watching TV, news, or Western, Western most often. And I would go up there and sit next to his bed in a director's chair, and his valet would bring me some uh, juice, apple juice or something. And I'd try to make conversation with Ford. He, he liked me, he tolerated me, but he acted like he didn't. <laughs> and um, I, I said to him, one day I was, trying to make, I was trying to make conversation. So I said, it's Duke's birthday next week. I thought I'd give him a present. I thought I'd give him a book. Huh? I said, it's Duke's birthday next week. I thought I'd give him a present. I thought I'd give him a book. Huh? Now Ford was a little deaf, but when he wanted to really humiliate you, he would make you repeat the same thing five or six times, pretending to be stone deaf. Now there's no sentence that you can think of in any, any language that doesn't sound ridiculous after about six times <laughs> at ever-increasing volume. So finally I'm yelling, it's Duke's birthday next week. I thought I'd give him a present. I thought I'd give him a book. Duke is John Wayne, by the way. And Ford looks at me and he goes, hmm, he's got a book. <laughs> which which uh, was also a comment on Duke's, quote, you know, intellectual capacity, <laughs> but which isn't fair at all because Wayne was quite smart and, and, and very likable, but, uh, but Ford liked to make fun of him. I said, I love that damn Republican. Okay, one more question, one more answer. You know, when, we were shoot, when he was shooting, oh, one more Ford story. When he was shooting um, Cheyenne Autumn, I was there on Mon in Monument Valley with him for three weeks uh, doing a piece for Esquire. This was in 1963. I was 63, yeah, 63. I was uh, about uh, 25, 24. And um, I'd never been on a set before. And um, so they did this stunt. The actor, the uh, stuntman rode down toward the camera, stopped, and he jumped off the horse. Before the horse stopped, he jumped off the horse, landed on his feet, and handed a message to Dick Widmark. And Ford said, cut it, that's well, which means print it. And um, now I was standing, <laughs> I was standing ne near him, right next to him, close two, three feet away. He turns to me now for some unknown reason and says, how about that? <laughs> I didn't know what the hell to say, so I said, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that looked difficult. He looked so disgusted with me. He just looked at me like this. I'd say it was difficult, yes. <laughs> and he turned and walked three steps away, and he turned to me. I'd say it was very difficult. So I, I, I said, oh, I, thought to, I thought to myself, okay, I'm not going to go near him for a while. And so I went as far away as I could. It's a big area, you know. It's like, a, and about five, ten minutes later, they did another stunt, something, and uh, Ford yells out, Bogdanovich! <laughs> oh, shit. So I, I run over to him. Yes, Mr. Ford. Yes. Did that look difficult to you? <laughs> I said, yes, Mr. Ford. I just wanted to see if, if you thought that was difficult. <laughs> yes, Mr. Ford. 
He did that for the next two weeks. <laughs> How about that? Difficult? <laughs> I, I think we have to stop, but that's a good place to stop. Um, oh, this is more questions. Uh, more questions. Yeah, we have time. Oh, and they said that we can have a little more time. So here's another question. Oh, I just finished two of them, three of them. Frank Marshall did a documentary. Um, Morgan Neville did a documentary, the one you're mentioning. And we finally got the picture cut and open. I think that's it for Orson for a couple of years. <laughs> Moving on, Orson. I've done a book about him already. By the way, that question about documentaries that I didn't quite finish answering. Uh, the Ford documentary, I I'm very happy with it now. It's out on, out on uh, Warner Home Video. And it's, it's called Directed by John Ford, and it's completely different, although we have all the good stuff from the first cut, the interviews with Wayne, Stewart, and Fonda, and Ford. And, but we have new interviews with Spielberg and uh, Scorsese and, and me. I, I interviewed myself. And uh, it, it's a much better documentary, much more, uh, it, it, it gives you a better picture. Then the other one I did was on Tom Petty, which I was very happy to do. I love Tom. Yeah, go ahead, he's a great man. It's called Running Down a Dream. We spent two years on that. I loved working with Tom. He was, we worked very closely together. He, he, he pretended that he had nothing to do with it, but he was, we worked very closely together. And uh, I loved it. It was three hours, you know. We won a Grammy. Best long-form video. I said, long-form? You ain't kidding. <laughs> three hours. Used to be five, but we cut it down to three. It's, it's, it holds your interest. And then we did this one. And that's about it. I, think, I don't think I've done any others. Well, I think in terms of the question about the, the modern documentary, I think you, you did it, maybe not even realizing, that having kind of a different shape to it that was um, where you were thinking about the modern audience and what they were doing and giving it almost a feature feeling, a narrative feeling sometimes, is what the modern documentary is as opposed to what it used to be, you know, so you did it anyway. Well, that's good. I'm glad I did it. Un unknowingly, <laughs> unknowingly. Anyway, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.